Voice Nation. Greetings and gesticulations, and welcome to yet another fun-filled, thrill-packed episode of Device Nation, the voice of operative orthopedics. This is Kevin Brown, your digital ASR, and I hope you are having a wonderful day. I know I certainly am. So you're probably thinking to yourself, gesticulations, why all the frantic hand movements? What's going on? Well, I'm excited. It's not only the most wonderful time of the year, I'm excited because... I'm going back to Dallas, Dallas, Dallas. I'm going back to Dallas. Yeah, I think so. And you know what else I think? I think a lot of you would love to have that MP3 file of that clip as a ringtone for your phone. Well, I'm considering selling it as an NFT, and I feel confident I could probably get 0.00000 Ethereum for it. Well, you know what does have a lot of value? It's going to be the voices that you're going to hear over the next few episodes as we do our AUKUS retrospective. We spent some time in the exhibit hall last time around for a retrospective. Got a chance to hear from the best of the best, talking about what they were excited about this year. And now we're going down that long carpeted hallway to the Grand Hall. Speaking of halls, I'll never forget this time of year being in a case and the scrub tech was being a little ornery this particular day. You know, I heard that voice in my ear saying, Kevin, don't say it. Keep your mouth shut. But on this particular day, I just had to let it fly. What happened to deck the halls and fa-la-la? I threw out there. She immediately threw up a fist and she said, I'm going to deck somebody's halls. And you know, all I could think, if I say one more thing, I have a feeling she's going to come across that table, break scrub, and physically demonstrate why it's the most wonderful time of year. Well, we're not going to be decking any halls today, but we are going to be spending some time in the Grand Hall. And what better place to start than a conversation with the AUKUS 2021 Program Chair, Dr. Antonia Chin, Harvard Medical School Associate Professor and MBA from Rutgers, Director of Research, Arthroplasty Service at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Current Concepts Trustee on the Editorial Board of Practically Everything. And I haven't even scratched the surface of her CV. You think we could learn something from her? Absolutely. Dr. Antonia Chin, thank you so much for coming on Device Nation. Thanks for having me. Dr. Chen, it was such a pleasure to meet you at AUKUS and just an incredible meeting. And honestly, your career up to this point has just been incredible, covering so much ground, research, publications, manuscript review, just on and on and on. I've got a lot of questions on a lot of those fronts, but before we get there, I've just got to ask you, what put you on the path to medicine? That started a long time ago. I was in second grade, and while I was a second grader, we did a play on the human body. And I think everyone does that when they're young. Right. So everyone plays a part, you know, like the brain or the lungs or the heart. Well, I got to play the part of the doctor. So I remember coming home with my mom, and I go, Mom, I really want to be a doctor when I grow up. And my mom goes, well, <laughs> intelligently enough, sure, that sounds great, dear. So <laughs> she didn't discourage me from that. Um, as I was doing more and more courses over time, I really liked science, but I liked working with people and humans, not just the science aspect of things. And medicine is the perfect marriage of the two of them. So I kept going into medicine and, you know, I kept pursuing it, did all the pre-med requirements, got into med school. And I remember my first year of medical school and 
they would ask me, so what do you want to do when you grow up? I'm like, I want to be a pediatrician because I, at that point in time, I hadn't really thought of it though. Cause I wasn't sure. I was like, Oh, I just want to be a doctor. I didn't know what type, but I thought pediatricians were great because I love kids and that would be a good way to go. Clearly that changed with time. What happened in the middle of that that said, you know what? I want to get an MBA while we're here. The MBA was interesting. So at that time, MBAs were not at all popular. Most people did not do MBAs. Now it's a very commonplace thing to get an MD and MBA. At that point in time, I thought I was going to run my own private practice. So I needed to have the skills and the tools in my belt to um, run a practice, and I wouldn't need to do that through an MBA. So that's why I decided to get one. Um, our school was really good, though. They had a joint MD-MBA program where you took, took two summer, your summers between the first and second year, and you took one year, extra year off. You need to take two years off, but just one year off, and you can get your MBA. Um, and the, they actually paid for the MBA portion, not the MD portion, but they paid for the MBA portion. So that was a win-win in my book. Win-win for me was seeing a name that I haven't heard in a while, but it always puts a smile on my face. Uh, your mentor, Dr. Alfred Tria. Uh, Legacy Zimmer reps will never be able to get out of their mind the sight of him in a cape and tights. Uh, that had to have been a real joy to work alongside him. That was such a win. It was such a new world to me. I had no idea about knee implants or knee development or prosthesis or even being on the podium at that time frame. And he's like, let me show you how it's done. And I, I, I first thought, I really hope I don't have to get up in the cape and tights, but I'm willing to do so if I need to. But he was my biggest influence when it came to orthopedics. Um, I actually was debating on not to go to orthopedics. They always said between your first and second year of med school, you should do a research project. And so I had reached out to him and he took a chance on me. He had never really worked with med students. He mostly worked with fellows or maybe even residents, but never med students at that time. And again, he took a chance. And I was there when he was doing the whole, you know, MIS, cape. My, my project for medical school is actually on minimally invasive total neonoplasty because of him. So he led me down the path of the dangerous but fulfilling path of research when it comes to orthopedics. Onward to the University of Pittsburgh Orthopedic Surgery Department for your fellowship under the legendary Dr. Freddie Fu. What a giant that left us way too soon this year. Any thoughts on working with him? And I got to ask, uh, under that type of leadership, uh, how come you're not in sports medicine? <laughs> well, so one of the first things I always say about Freddie Fu is that he had boundless energy. Right. I mean, literally, that man would never sleep. I mean, we joked that he used to answer emails before we even wrote them because he was so on top of things. So, you know, I, as you can probably guess, I learned a lot from him when it comes to organizations and leading people and just staying on top of your work because his responsiveness really made him a legend in what he was. And his brain was always thinking sure. a mile, a minute, a million miles a minute and um, coming up with and generating new ideas. So he was a force of nature to work with. Um, just don't mess up because if you messed up, he would let you know. But he he was incredible. I mean, he, he he inspired all of us to be where we are right now, in all honesty. The sports medicine side of thing was interesting. Very many people, we get to experience sports. I felt very comfortable doing sports procedures. But I joke that if I hadn't loved joints before going in, thanks to Dr. Tria, I might have converted. But Dr. Tria kept me on my toes, so... His influences when I was a med student really uh, kept going, and 
I stuck with that dream throughout all of residency. So Dr. Fu couldn't sway that. I, I joke that I traded one Freddy for another Freddy. Well, let's fast forward to here we are now. Tell us about your practice. Uh, what are you doing these days? So I'm at Brigham Women's Hospital, which is in Boston, and I do hip and knee replacements. So I do both of them too, and I still take trauma call. Um, it's an academic practice, so it's a little bit different. Um, I do uh, two days OR, two days clinic, and one day of research, and uh, really try to uh, do things in the field that hopefully um, elevate it and improve our patients' outcomes as we study different aspects of joint replacements. What do you enjoy doing the most? That's always a tough one to ask a joint surgeon. So surgically, I like doing total knees better. Outcome-wise, I like doing total hips better. Our patients who do total hips, they all do great. It's wonderful. No matter what approach you use, they do really well. But knees, from a technical perspective, I like a, the approach better. I like the surgery better. Um, I feel like it's more elegant. And it's been fun to dabble in enabling technologies because you can try different technical aspects of it. So whether it be robotics, augmented reality, navigation, things like that, it's been fun to experiment on that in both the hips and the knees, but more so in the knees. Have you integrated robotics into your uh, reconstruction practice? Yeah, we added a robot because we thought it'd be great to be able to teach this to the residents and fellows. And a lot of the fellows who are leaving are actually joining practices that have robotic systems, so we're able to offer it to them. Um, so it's a great tool. I think it's a fantastic teaching tool. I love um, watching. I joke that the OIT comes to life when I talk about balancing. We talk about you know medial lateral gaps, balancing and flexing extension, which do the components, how you make mechanical alignment cuts versus kinematic alignment cuts. So it's been a wonderful tool for teaching and for executing plans on patients. And it's fun when the residents and fellows get to do the case and they go, oh, wow, you've actually like delivered what you promised to deliver on the plan. A lot of awards out there, Harvard Excellence in Student Mentoring, Exceptional Women in Medicine Award by Castle Conley, Top Doctor Award in Boston, even a coveted John and Saul Traveling Fellowship sprinkled in there. Uh, is there any one particular award as you look back and go, you know, that's just the one I'm so proud of? That's a tough one. Um, I'm proud of everything because it represents people that I'm working with. You know, they bring up the Insult Fellowship. You know, that's a huge honor to be able to go forth and, you know, work with, I worked with, I was with three other fellows at the time as we traveled throughout the United States and people graciously invited us into their place, open up their home, open up their lives and just um, let us be a part of them and really welcome us with open arms. And, you know, that actually led to me being brought on as a Knee Society member. So, you know, it's another community that's, you know, welcoming me and that's a huge deal for me. So the same thing with Hip Society, people have really welcomed me in that way, too. So that's been a fun endeavor. Uh, while not awards, they're accolades that I'm excited about. Uh, but I think the ones that also stick out to me are research awards. You know, we all know with research, it takes a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of people pour a lot of time and effort into it, and patients volunteer themselves to do so. So the, those are probably the awards that stick out the most, um, or the research awards, because you know how much time and effort goes into them. couple uh, things right there that really caught my attention. One of them, you won a John Insull Award with the Nice Society over. Uh, that was fascinating to me because I had a conversation with Dr. Uh, Andrew Wickline about this very subject. Unsupervised home exercises equal outcomes to traditional outpatient PT. What did you find as your conclusion and all that, and did it surprise you? So it actually did surprise me. So when we started out of the study, we started noticing that some of the patients that we worked with, some, not all, some would say, you know what, I just don't need formal physical therapy. It's an extra charge. I have to go out of my house to get there. I get on a bike for 20 minutes and I'm biking myself and I'm doing all the exercises on my own. I really have to go to physical therapy. And of course, our dogma at that time was, no, you have to do physical 
physical therapy because that's what we've done traditionally for you know years and years and years. So we said, okay, well, what if we don't do physical therapy? Will you do worse? And so we wanted to study that in the context of a formal randomized controlled trial. So when we were doing the study, we were randomizing the three groups. And one group was web physical therapy, one was paper physical therapy, and one was in-person physical therapy. And the most interesting thing, at least to me, was when we were recruiting patients, many of the patients refused to participate because they wanted to do home, phys- home exercises, not physical therapy. Right. So when we told them in the study they could be randomized to one of the three groups, including outpatient therapy, people would say, nope, don't want to do it. They'd rather just go home and do exercises on their own. So that was the first big surprise. And the second surprise, and to some degree, actually, the result was somewhat surprising in that patients did just as well if they got unsupervised physical therapy, either web-based or paper-based. Now, that's not true for everyone, right? right? Some patients will really benefit from outpatient physical therapy and kind of need it. And some people did cross over to formal physical therapy if they weren't getting enough motion um, at the two-week and four-week mark. So those are the type of patients that we have to watch out for. But in all honesty, it's it's great to be able to empower patients uh, with their own exercise and be able to do things on their own. So it's been it was a really fun finding in that study, and I can now cite that to my patients, being like, "It's okay for you to do exercises on your own. You'll do great still." Doctor Chan, I'm a little strange in this regard, but I love trying to identify implants uh, that people send me and show me pictures. Of. I don't know why. It's like a treasure. It's like national treasure. And I, I genuinely about came out of my chair when I started reading about, and I just love the title of it. Detecting total hip replacement prosthesis design on plane radiographs using deep convolution neural network. That was just so cool. Tell me about that. <laughs> Once you do anything with deep CNN, yes. that was pretty cool. I have to say, that's how we abbreviate the, uh, the neural networks into CNN. And I will tell you, it's been actually a really great collaborative with the Harris Lab. Um, and uh, Orphan's my collaborator along with Ali Reza. And they've been fantastic to work with because, you know, we need to elevate orthopedics to the next level, right? right? We, you know, people like you are phenomenal to the field because that you guys are the people that I rely on. You know, I said, I still send x-rays to my tech rep back in Philly, actually, because he's so good at identifying any implant known to man um, that it's impressive. I mean, you guys are the brain we're trying to replicate. You know, but the problem is that it's a hands of a few that you guys are so good at looking at them. You want to sleuth them out. You want to dissect them down. The question is, can we automate that into a system? Take your brain and essentially make it into a computer program. Um, And that's what my collaborators wanted to do. And it was really fun to do so. And they compared them to to orthopedic surgeons that we didn't do so hot. (laughs) So (laughs) the irony is the orthopedic surgeons aren't as great as we think we are in identifying implants. And as we know, when you're doing these revision cases, that's key to be able to identify them. So it, it was humbling to see a computer do a better job than us. But it's also promising because you know, someone who's out in the middle of Kansas and doesn't have a connection to guys like you can you know, plug it into a system, hopefully in the future, and get an automatic, num- like an automatic um, uh, system where they know what they bring along for their case. If they need to extract it, they have things ready. I'm waiting for that moment when a company takes this issue by the reins and etches their implant in such a way as that you see the company and all this information on an x-ray. I think that'll just be such a step forward. That's a brilliant idea. I think you should make that happen. I don't get invited <laughs> to those meetings. 
I love the paper that you did on the efficacy of hip articulating spacers, all cement versus real component spacers. I've seen some work by Dr. Hoffman in the past on this issue, and I was just curious, what was your conclusions? And I'll ask you the question that I saw uh, come out on one of your presentations. Uh, Can we just do it all in one case? Yeah, thank you for watching that. You know, myself and my collaborator, Dr. Schwarzkopf at NYU, I mean, he's the brains behind this operation, but it's something that we all do. And it's been great to see that patients who have these implants in basically articulating implants, uh, metalhead with an all-poly liner that's cemented with antibiotic cement, well, not as good as a real cemented total hip, does the job in providing antibiotic pollution and more importantly, provides really good function. And patients are just way more satisfied. There's less grinding in the hip. The implants stay for longer, even though it's not cemented again as well. It's supposed to be cemented on purpose for antibiotic illusion. So it's nice that I think people have been doing this for some time. Um, some people have asked, are you sure it's safe? Is it okay for patients? Should I just stick to what I've been doing for the last, you know, decade or two decades or things like that in practice? And the answer is, it's okay to change because we found that it's actually good, if not better for our patients to undergo the spacer placement essentially. It's way more functional for our patients. Uh, agreed. I think we're trending that way on the knees, too. I saw a couple companies at the meeting this year that were really close. Got long stem, all poly tibias with some thicker surfaces in there. I, I think we're right on it. Mm-hmm. We are. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense that then patients can hopefully live with these for a little bit longer. And we don't have to go back in right away. And some patients, honestly, of mine, keep them forever. They really never want anyone to go back in their knees. So we call them a you know, functional spacer as opposed to a temporary spacer because they may not be so temporary, actually. A couple things that you've been researching that are just fascinating to me. Uh, I want to ask you about vitamin D supplementation, drug-eluting implants, and decision-making aids. So what did you find out on vitamin D for patients considering total joint replacement? So vitamin D is an interesting one because my big interest is in preoperative patient optimization prior to surgery to reduce confection risk. So vitamin D came out as a really big factor, even pre-COVID, as preventing some conditions. But even during COVID, people were saying, take your vitamin D because if you get COVID, it'll help with the recovery or reduce the severity. Um, so it was one of those things we already started looking at that time frame. Right. Now, the way that I really wanted to design the study was supplementation versus no supplementation but our IRB would only allow us to do high versus low-dose supplementation. And we found that there's not a huge difference between high versus low-dose supplementation, and our complication rates are so low that it's really hard to tell if this is making a difference. But I can tell you we're actually able to supplement our patients back to normal levels after starting the supplementation process if they have most uh, vitamin D. So at least we're moving the needle in the right way, if not helping their outcomes after toilet joint replacements, we're helping their health in general. So that's what we're aiming for in that one. Drug-eluting implants, when I heard about this, really got me interested. The ability to infuse antibiotics into polyethylene. Uh, What's your thoughts on that? I think that's the way of the future. And I think that we're trying to do is if we can do things to prevent infection or prevent, I guess, pain or or reduce pain after surgery, the more we can do in the intraoperative environment as opposed to after surgery, is probably the best and most effective way to deliver drugs. So they've tethered vancomycin to, uh, to polyethylene, and that's amazing because then you can actually have the drugs present there to kill the bacteria on site. And they've actually found out that if you add bupivacaine to it, so if you tether bupivacaine 
which is a um, uh, local anesthetic, essentially, it can help reduce pain at the site, and that actually potentiates the effect of the bacteria killing. So you get a, a win, another win-win again, right? right? You get a kill bacteria, you get a reduced pain, and hopefully the patient does better after surgery. So the tibia, the, the tibia is a bigger surface area when it comes to the poly. The hip polyethylene is a smaller surface area, so whether or not it will be enough, we don't know yet. Um, but it's actually a really, this could be a game changer. I'm hearing more and more about decision-making aids in our space. And I know you're working on a project with the goal of reducing racial and ethnic disparities in joint replacement. What have you learned? We've learned that it's one size does not fit all, which we probably already known all along, but it's not one of those things that we've talked about a lot. So for example, the decision-making, sorry, the decision-making aid that we normally give out in clinics says, are you ready for surgery? Question mark. Well, for a lot of my ethnic patients, the answer is no. They don't want, they're not here to talk about surgery. They're here to talk about what can they do for their knee or their hip way before they talk about surgery. You know, I can speak specifically about my you know Chinese patient population. You know, my parents, my grandparents, my relatives, none of them are interested in surgery. They don't want to talk about surgery. And that's true for our Latinx patients or black patients as well. So it's one of these areas that we say, you know what, we need to develop something where if you want to talk to me about surgery, we want you to offer that opportunity to do that. But we also want you to make a decision with us as to how you want to further your care. So if you want to start with non-operative management first, which makes sense, this will talk about it. So we've actually developed a video um, shared decision-making aid for patients who are um, black and Latinx, but also it's for any one individual. And it opens up and broadens up the conversation a little bit more, uh, places and patients that potentially look more like them, um, provides, gives providers that look more like them. And so we've created these shared decision-making aids so that we can talk to the level that a patient would feel more comfortable with as opposed to making assumptions. It was such an honor and a pleasure uh, to not only get to meet you, but to talk to you at AUKUS and hear a little bit of your work on the piano. So here we are, 30 years later in 2021. AUKUS is really hitting her stride. I was just curious if you had any thoughts on the organization and any thoughts on the meeting. This organization is one of my favorite organizations in the entire world. And I will say because of a few reasons. One, I loved how it started from a small gathering of passionate arthroplasty surgeons and has burgeoned into this incredibly huge group of individuals and yet hasn't lost its flavor. You know, I was at the president's dinner and there, the guys who were there who you know, remembered those who started it were you know, sharing stories about how they were sitting in the airport hotel and that's where it began here in Dallas. And so... I, I love it because it hasn't lost its heart. And the mission that it came up to do was to educate and advocate for every orthoplasty surgeon who's out there, whether it be a community orthopedic surgeon that does orthoplasty or a high-volume orthoplasty surgeon that does over a 1,000 cases a year. They will represent you. That's what I really like about it. The next step I love about AUKUS is that they're, they're willing to take bigger steps. You know, it's one of those things where we've covered a lot of the same topics over time. We've gotten to fun debates and we've tried different formats. And it's been great to watch this evolve over time. And this year, um, they let me go on a limb and they let me try out a few things. And these few things could have totally flopped um, or they could have been a success. And I think it was a conversation starter for a lot of people. I think it might have opened up the conversation 
in areas that they had not necessarily thought about before. Um, but I think it's something that we recognize is a big part of our society, a part of our lives, and part of our patients' lives, and part of our lives as surgeons. So this year, I was you know, really humbled and honored to be able to be program chair, and they were to entrust me with the program, put it out there. And I feel like the membership hopefully learned from it and was able to understand the heart of what AUKUS is about, which is growing and reflecting what our members want to hear and see and learn from. Dr. Bodner tagged you the other day, uh, just congratulating you on the amazing job you did in that role for AUKUS this year. As you look back on all these incredible presentations that were put out there, was there anything that put you back a little bit and said, wow, that was profound? The one that was probably the most profound for me personally was the symposium on caring for the high-risk and diverse patient. I think it's one of those things that we recognize that we have high-risk patients, we have a diversity of patients, but we, you know, acknowledge it, but we don't necessarily delve into it and deep, basically go deeper into it. So I would like to highlight Dr. Silliman's talk where she's like, we need to be deliberate. We need to deliberate how we educate these patients, how we talk to these patients, how we love with these patients, how we meet these patients where they are. And that sort of shared decision-making aid was, you know, just a tip of the iceberg of how we can actually address these patients and talk to them in a way that they understand. And the health literacy talked by Dr. Cohen Rosenblum was also very useful, too. I was able to take tips and tricks from each one of them. Um, Hugo was able to give one. Dr. Huddleston was able to get one. They gave talks that was really made me think a lot, made me look at the, I think, my patients differently in a good way and will probably change my practice. So, Anytime that there's talks out there that are practice changing or helpful, I have to say personally, when I was going through this list of all these research projects, all the symposia, myself and the program committee really wanted to select impactful and essentially practice changing techniques and tips and tricks that we could utilize. Now, for some people, it's just going to reinforce what they're doing in practice anyway. And for some people, they're going to be like, you know, that's really interesting. I never thought of D-dimer that way, or I never thought of you know, proximal femoral replacements that way. So our job was to stir up conversation, and I think we were reduced so, and people were engaged, and I think people were hungry just to be back in person and talking to each other once again. So it was really fun to see that interaction come up from all the different talks out there, and that's all thanks to the speakers and the good job they did putting their talks together. You used the word changing, and there's a lot of change coming our way, not only on the industry side, but but your side as well. How do you see AUKUS responding to that change uh, as you put on your future hat and think about the next 30 years of this organization? Do they just continue in the same mission or do you see some tweaks responding to uh, to what's going on? Change is always hard to say to an orthopedic surgeon because we never like change, let's be honest. That's true. <laughs> we like the same things over and over again, even though we like to advance the technology field. Just so right. funny to think of that. Um, I think another impactful talk session or symposia was led by Dr. Rich Iorio, our president this year. And it's the financial implications of what's going on. Um, And Dr. Slover also gave this great talk where I heard a lot of people say afterwards, like, this should be mandatory for every resident, fellow, orthopedic surgeon to listen to because, unfortunately, a lot of our changes will probably be financial. Um, And as we look at the financial landscape, that's where AUKUS is at the forefront of advocacy, advocating for its members, advocating um, where change is necessary and to really understand what is necessary or not. You know, we're doing re- more and more revisions, hip and knee replacements. Well, when you change that, 
so that we're not um, able to get that work done because we're not going to be given the appropriate measurement of, for lack of a better term, compensation for it, that's going to really restrict access to care, which is not good for our patients. So those type of, those guys have brought it to one light. And then again, from a financial standpoint and from even a, let's say a um, practical standpoint with regards to performing bone tumor replacements and the logistics of it, Dr. Ast put together a fantastic symposia on outpatient joints, you know, and that's again, ASCs and outpatient joints is the next frontier. So those changes will be happening. And I think we'll need to adapt from a surgeon and patient perspective. Some patients are like, oh, no, I'm definitely not going home the same day. Some surgeons are like, oh, no, I want you to stay in the hospital for longer because there's no way in the world I'm going to discharge a total knee the same day as surgery. But I think that tide is changing. And what Agus is good at doing is, you know, going with the ebbs and flows, adapting and making new uh, changes for their members and being able to let members know what's going on, especially from CMS and from a governmental perspective. You know, when something's on the inpatient-only list, when something's taken off the inpatient-only list, things that are relevant to us that we may not pay attention to is really helpful because as an organization, I guess we get it out to us as soon as possible. Well, Dr. Chen, we can't say the word change without at least noting that, that one change that we've both seen is the introduction of more and more women into orthopedics. And I know that you're part of the Women in Arthroplasty group. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, I know there was some talk about this at the AUKUS meeting. It's one of the organizations that I am definitely very proud of. So Dr. Linda Suleiman came up with this brainchild idea and we talked about it. And Dr. Craig Delavalli, he was the president at the time and he took a gamble on us. We proposed this to him, told him what we wanted to do. And it wasn't just a gathering of women. We wanted to make an impact on the field. You know, it wasn't just like, oh, here's rah, rah, a bunch of women hanging out together. But let's do something. Let's do tips and tricks in arthroplasty. Let's talk about work-life balance. Let's talk about having a panel of all female arthroplasty surgeons, which happened this last meeting, right. and led, led by Dr. Mina James. So it's been fun to see that come about. about our uh, our president right now, our, our I guess our committee chair is Dr. Audrey Tao, and she's been a force of nature in doing this for the last 20 years. She you know, has been always advocating for women, and to see it come to fruition in an organization and um, being able to do a lot. We have men in our organization as well, too, Dr. Eric Smith and Dr. Adam Olson, so it's great to have their support as well. So this group has been really fun because it is a bunch of women who do orthopedics and do arthroplasty specifically, but we want to be out there not just beating the drum for women, but we want to be out there you know, teaching. And just like everyone else advocating, we have health uh, advocacy fellows. Uh, one of the things I'm most proud of, though, personally, is being able to set an example for the future generations, to let them know that they, too, can do this as well. Um, I know that we've had mentors above us that we've always wanted to emulate and look after, but we want to be able to mentor and bring up the next group. You know, We've worked hard and fought hard to be where we are now, and we want to create the paths for the next generation and not having to go through the same steps that we've had to go through. Well, I'd like to give you an opportunity to speak to those future generations right here and right now. I ran into a woman over in New Orleans the other day that was in her residency and wanted to go into orthopedics. And if she was sitting around a table with you right now, what advice would you have to her coming at the beginning of her career as a female orthopedic surgeon? The first thing I would say is definitely follow your dreams. And I know that sounds pie in the sky, high above, and everyone says that. But really do that. If that's what you're passionate about, if you are passionate about orthopedics, 
if you're passionate about arthroplasty, if you're passionate about spine, if you're passionate about peds or hands or anything else, but definitely choose joints, <laughs> um, you should pursue <laughs> you should pursue what you love. And the thing I will always tell people is that your dreams might change. You know, if your dream changes that you want to be married and have kids and you want to spend as much time with your kids and family as possible, then that's okay. That's your dream. If your dream is to become, you know, NIH-funded, billion dollars a year, that's okay too. Then you should pursue that dream. But whatever your dream is, you should pursue it and don't be held back because of labels such as female, such as orthopedics, such as work-life balance, all those sorts of things. You want to just keep doing what you do because you love it. Great advice. And while you're giving advice, uh, I got to ask you about a talk that you did a while back ago and it just, the, the phrase jumped off the page at me, building your brand. Giving advice to surgeons trying to do just that. What would you tell them? I would say that your brand can change with time, but build what you're proud of. Build what you want to do and be known for what you want to do. So, you know, if there's a product that you're like, mm, I'm not so passionate about it, not excited about it. Remember, that becomes part of your brand. So be sure when you're building your brand, you're choosing the things that you like to do and that you enjoy it. Great advice. Dr. Chan, we have a lot of reps that listen to this show. And I love asking surgeons uh, if you had to give any advice to, to reps just starting out in this field or, or people who would grace your room, uh, what would it be? So for the reps in my room, I would say you want to be the most knowledgeable person about your products as possible. Just like I want to be as knowledgeable about total hip and total knee replacements as possible. Because at the end of the day, if you're the only rep in the room, if I'm the only surgeon in the room, the buck stops with us. Meaning if I look at you, I want to say, what do you have here on inventory? I want you to know what's going on there. If I say, if I use this liner and this head combination, how thick is the liner? I want you to tell me the answer there. Um, these are the, and I want you to know the options when it comes to these things because we work as a team. And I think ultimately what I like to tell reps and residents and med students and fellows is imagine the person on the table is your family member and you want the best possible care for them. Would you be the most prepared for the case or would you be the least prepared for the case? And the answer is you always be want to be prepared because if you're taking care of someone you love and care for, you want to give them the best. So if you can do that and you can pretend every single case is someone that you care for is on that table and you want to have the best goods out there for them and ready to take care of them, and that will make a great team with you and your surgeon, hands down. Great advice. Dr. Chen, uh, you are a woman in full. You're, you're just doing so many things, ticking off so many boxes in your career right now. Well done. I, I just got to say that. And it's just a real honor and pleasure Thanks. to have you on just to share your life with us and the great work you're doing up at Brigham and the great work you're doing at AUKUS. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate this conversation. What an awesome conversation and what an amazing legacy she is laying down right now. And I know so many more years to come, just an incredible trajectory and velocity of work. I was looking at the news the other day and Microport announced the first successful augmented reality case in the United States utilizing the new Pixie Medical technology. And guess who the surgeon was that implanted that knee? Of course, Dr. Antonia Chin. Definitely one to watch and a huge thank you to her for coming on the show to share her life with the Device Nation audience. Well, a huge thank you to you for listening. Hope you enjoy this holiday season. Don't be decking anybody's halls and look forward to seeing you on the next installment of our AUKUS Retrospective. <laughs>